Do you have top-secret clearance? I do. Well. Well, first of all, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to think we're alone and that we're the most advanced species out there. Between you and me, Richard, I pray to God we aren't the most advanced species out there. I can guarantee you we're not. I'll, I'll say that. Do you think one of the reasons could be that they're already here amongst us? I, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, oh, Richard. Oh, my goodness me. There is one piece of software that's on everybody's computer, and it's not Windows, necessarily the Windows operating system, but everybody has to have on their system an antivirus software. Well, guess what antivirus software does? Antivirus software scans every piece of data on oh, your computer, man. plus every bit of ingoing and outgoing data that comes in across the Internet That's right. to protect you from viruses. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Ever wondered if those fuzzy pictures of lights flying across the sky are really alien aircraft? Do you think the government is really hiding UFOs at Area 51? If so, you may not be alone. Now, according to the Associated Press, with over one-third of the population saying aliens actually do exist... Author and nuclear physicist Richard Phillips believes life on other planets does indeed exist. His belief stems from extensive classified research, oh, we're going to get into this tonight, folks, in aerospace technologies that he generated for the U.S. military. Now, in his new sci-fi thriller book, titled The Second Ship, Phillips explores the reality of mankind harnessing powerful alien technology with the implications the new technology would have on humanity. Every new technology offers fascinating opportunities, but at a potential cost, says Phillips, who is a huge proponent of scientific research but believes every scientific theory is only a model of reality. Technologies currently under investigation carry risks. For example, CERN scientists outside Geneva are proceeding with tests that could produce a micro-black hole and thereby destroy our entire planet. Tonight on Night Fright, we explore the possibilities of back-engineering alien technology. Tonight on Night Fright, we look at the secrecy of an ongoing extensive cover-up at Area 51. Tonight on Night Fright, get ready to be riveted to your seat. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. Now your host, Brent Holland.
Hi, Richard. Welcome to the show, folks. This is Richard Phillips. He's got a book here called The Second Ship. And uh, Richard, maybe just to start us off, can you give us a brief synopsis about the book and perhaps the main characters? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Uh, first of all, I'd like to take a brief time out and say thank you to, the, um, to all you readers out there that have uh, put the second ship in the uh, top five bestsellers on Amazon Kindle for the last several weeks, and, and, and that's in several categories. So Congratulations. I appreciate all that. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep that reading going. <laughs> Congratulations. That's great news. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. And, uh, and we've actually sold out uh, paperbacks on Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now, so, uh, so they got more coming from the warehouse, so uh, put your orders in anyway. Um, yeah, so the second ship, one thing I was gonna, I was gonna throw out there, I know you, you went through my bio and stuff, but I thought I'd throw a little, a uh, couple of tidbits out there because it plays into, uh, what I'm about to say about the second ship and what we'll probably get into, uh, during our discussion tonight. Yes, sir. Um, uh, you know, as, as you said, the, you know, I was born in Roswell, New Mexico in 1956, and I grew up in a little town, uh, not far from there, uh, in fact, my graduating class in high school uh, from Capitan High School uh, was a grand total of uh, 12 seniors, counting me. So, so this was not a big place, and uh, and you can imagine I had quite a bit of culture shock heading off to New York and, and West Point. Uh, but after that, you know, as Army Ranger qualification, and then uh, several years uh, doing you know, stints in the United States and overseas before the Army sent me back to get my master's in nuclear physics at mm. uh, Lawrence, at Los Alamos uh, National Laboratories where I did my thesis work uh, for the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, and after that, I worked uh, several years at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab doing classified research there. Um, and since that time, uh, one thing that's not covered in my bio is I've, uh, I've essentially spent the last uh, uh, dozen or so years uh, still doing some classified research, some not, but, uh, but essentially working in the fields of robotics and uh, uh, advanced computing systems. Very cool. So, Very cool. so my background is uh, even more heavily in uh, computer science than it is in physics. Now, the reason I, I went into that is... Uh, the second ship uh, essentially is a series of novels that I wanted to write uh, set at one of the national laboratories. And I chose Los Alamos National Laboratory uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's this uh, beautiful place up in the uh, high mountains of northern New Mexico. And it sits about 8,000 feet, the town of Los Alamos. And uh, I'm sure most of your listeners know that, you know, the town of Los Alamos itself was created... Uh, in the 40s by the U.S. government to, uh, for the Manhattan Project to develop uh, the atomic bomb. And the idea was if they put it in such a remote location, it would make it harder, uh, you know, for secrets to leak mm -hmm. out about what they were doing there. Of course, that didn't work out all that well. The secret did leak out. <laughs> the Russians managed to infiltrate that program, and, and, uh, and that was that. Uh, but uh, it's this great, great place to set a series of novels. And, you know, I think a lot of people... Uh, at least I get a lot of questions, are really curious. You know, they hear day-to-day -day what's going on, all the advancements that are happening in science and computing and, uh, and medicine. And uh, a lot of people wonder, well, if this is, is what we're doing in public, uh, what the heck is probably going on in these top-secret programs that not only the U.S., but lots of countries have? 
what's going on at the uh, at the most secret levels of research. Um, it's got to be way beyond uh, what we're seeing out there in the public. Um, and you know, the downside of uh, my background is I can't talk specifically about classified research I've done. Uh-huh. Uh, but what I can do, and what I did in the second ship, yes, sir, was I I put in as much real science as I could, getting as close to what isn't allowed to talk about as I could, and I mixed in um, uh, my best judgment of uh, a ton of science that we're going to see within the next handful of years. In fact, I think within the uh, within the next uh, two computer cycles, um, we're going to see the seeds of of what what's going to happen by 2016. Uh, uh, now, uh, computer cycles, what I'm talking about is really um, Moore's, uh, you know, Moore's law, uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, is this, uh, this projection that computer power, this is an oversimplification, but mm-hmm. essentially computer power doubles every two years. And, it, and at that timeline has been going, you can look it up in Wikipedia, uh, et cetera, but uh, that timeline has been running at a doubling every two years since 1970. Uh, well, in, well, in the second ship, I take a look at some technologies uh, that um, we are about to have and some of the impacts of those technologies being released to the public. Now, uh, so Richard, story, Richard yeah. do you believe this technology is back-engineered from um, alien technology? Well, that's certainly the backstory in the second ship. Um, I won't comment directly on whether oh. it, it, it is, but I will say this. Um, uh, you can use your own head. Uh, I, you know, people, people see, you know, to a lot of people like to ask questions yes, and sir. like to, to look at history and say, what caused these sudden jumps? At various points in history, we've had these tremendous jumps in technology, and whether it was building the Great Pyramid mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, discovering things that Copernicus and Galileo discovered, or whether it's the real takeoff that's happened since the 40s, um, you know, with uh, nuclear physics. It wasn't just nuclear physics. A whole ton of things happened around that time. That's right. Uh, that were extremely interesting. You know, there was nuclear physics. Mm-hmm. There was lasers. There was television. There was uh, advances. You know, the first computing systems uh, uh, were developed at around that time. <clears throat> and There was uh, microchips and, also, and also uh, right the beginnings now, of fiber optics. Right. Transistors wow. came out. And... And one of the one of the things, the reasons I like to point out uh, Moore's law is, uh, you know, we've been working for years uh, looking at the subject of artificial intelligence, and and it's been a huge failure. I mean, since uh, since like the '80s, um, there was such high hopes for it in the computing industry, <clears throat> and just a relatively a complete failure. Um, but out of that failure uh, has come something uh, that is a little bit unexpected, even by uh, computer scientists, I think. Um, and that is, we, we finally, I think we, we essentially gave up. I mean, we didn't really give up, but, but a lot of scientists went away from putting their efforts into developing intelligent computers, and they started developing powerful computers, mm-hmm. Okay. And by that, I mean not just the number of chips, but things like massively parallel systems and systems that can do a bunch of things that 
at one time, and swarm computing. You know, that's essentially where you take a very simple little processor and you put tons of them out there, and they've got, and each of them has only a little bit of capability, but together when they start start cooperating, um, they're capable of amazing things, and they develop uh, they develop what they do in a way that is is pretty alien to the way we think, and I don't mean that necessarily in the extraterrestrial sense. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but but the way I like to think about it, and I think uh, yes, most uh, most people in your audience have probably uh, seen some of those old uh, <clears throat> Frankenstein movies where there were a couple of these big electric rods, sure. and there'd be a bolt of lightning that arced back and forth between them occasionally. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the way computers always worked until recently. Uh, but now, the way computers work with all the um, you know millions and thousands of threads of operation going simultaneously is more like you know one of those uh, those plasma balls you've probably seen on somebody's desk or at a curio shop where the sure. little um, millions of little bolts of electricity mm-hmm. are crawling mm-hmm. around the inside surface. And if you ever reach out and touch one of those plasma balls, it's like you suddenly attracted the attention of a whole boatload of those guys. And they all start scurrying around, and not all of them, but a whole bunch of them gather around your fingers like they're, they're trying to figure out what just uh, came to our attention. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the way these new computer systems uh, work. Uh, they, they are, I don't even like the term computers, uh, really anymore computer came from you know that came from computing and the old uh, analogy uh, of a cash register or an adding machine where you pulled the crank a mechanical system Mm -hmm. computed Mm -hmm. some value and spit out the answer Um, nowadays what these things are doing more and more and more on their own is ingesting i mean they're ingesters they're they're ingesting data in massive quantities and there is, they're acquiring so much uh, capacity that they're starting to be able to learn. I mean, uh, the first indications of learning are things like, well, you call up, you call up uh, uh, some business now, uh, or your phone company, it's most likely a computer that's answering that phone, and it's listening, it's analyzing your voice, and it's making judgments about what you're saying. And it's providing programmed responses. I mean, this is still in its in its early infancy. Uh, but these computers are learning to recognize our voices. They're learning to recognize our faces. I mean, there's face recognition things in airports. Um, and more interestingly, um, they're starting to do things uh, that... Uh, that are truly amazing and uh, more than a little bit frightening. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. I have a few questions for you now, Richard. Sure, go ahead. Do you have top secret clearance? I do. Well, the other question is you had mentioned that all these machines are obtaining knowledge. Do you think they'll reach a point where they will actually obtain consciousness? That's a very, very interesting question, and it's a very iffy question. Um, I, what, I, what I know they're doing is they are acquiring the capacity to learn. Okay? Yes, and uh, right now, the, the, what they're learning is uh, largely determined by what uh, people are trying to have them learn. But the problem is, you know, you remember a, a few years back when uh, mm-hmm. 
the Deep Blue processor from IBM actually beat Kasparov uh, That's in chess. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was thought that would never happen. Mm-hmm. But it did it because it just acquired so much processing power, it could grind to, through so many possibilities, it, it outplayed him that way. And these things are learning. They're ingesting data in massive quantities. And the, the probability is... Um, we're at the verge of where computers start to be able to acquire the ability to design the next generation of chips. I mean, we're using them to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they're, they're recognizing patterns in ways uh, that, that we're not exactly clear on. Um, and how they apply it uh, is also a bit fuzzy. So, so the matter of time, uh, the only reason I hedged my bet on consciousness Consciousness implies self-awareness. Yes. Now, uh, now I have a good uh, friend, a, a brilliant guy, who's a uh, co-worker with me named Alan Warner. Um, he believes that consciousness will come with the uh, with uh, at the same time they learn how to learn, and they're uh, essentially it means they start learning what they want to learn. Okay. Oh. Um, but uh, but regardless uh, of of our little difference of opinion on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest thing, I think, is we're seeing indications right now where Moore's Law is being violated. And what I mean by that is that nice straight line, which is really only straight because it's logarithmic scale, mm-hmm. it's a doubling, you know, it's an exponential line. But, but things are accelerating. Instead of slowing down, they're actually starting to accelerate <clears throat> off of that line to the upside. And what I look for is I make a, a basic assumption, and my assumption is because we were so poor at designing AI, we're going to have a hard time recognizing it when it first occurs on its own in computing systems. AI is artificial intelligence, folks, by the way. Right, right. Yeah. I'm sorry about no, that. No, that's fine. But, that's uh, fine. Uh, <laughs> you'll keep me straight. No, it's fine. Uh, I want to ask you. I just want to jump in here for a second. You sure. had mentioned that they're going to be starting to recognize various patterns. Now, I'm thinking in terms of national security. I can see the benefit of that without hesitation. Somebody can, uh, you know, somebody walking through a, a lineup in an airport, and all of a sudden, bang! The computer figures, okay, this guy is Osama bin Laden, for lack of a better example. Right. What worries me is if they start to anticipate the patterns, and all of a sudden, they start to uh, send out warnings or red flags on something that hasn't happened yet or somebody that hasn't happened yet. And I can see the big brother aspect of all this coming into it. Well, it's not just you. It's a lot of people. And, I mean, a lot of them are in my industry are starting to get concerned. Mm. uh, Because, uh, well, for the exact reason you just mentioned, but a whole lot more, too. uh, One of the things that makes me laugh is people are always asking me, you know, is there anything real in your series, the second, you know, the second ship, uh, immune and wormhole, which are the three books of the row agenda, mm-hmm. and uh, and the the doubters, the the technologies they throw back at me that is the most unrealistic. Some of them are the very closest to uh, reality right now, uh, which I which I usually can't say, but one of them which I can say is, uh, well, l- let me give you the scenario. Sure. Um, Early on in the uh, second ship, uh, you know, when the president has come out and announced that, you know, we've, we've been working on this damaged alien craft, trying to reverse engineer it for years, uh, and suddenly they've had these breakthroughs, so, so he's going public with it because they're just too important to keep bottled up anymore. 
Well, uh, it turns out that um, there's these uh, three young people, these three uh, juniors in high school, that whose fathers work at the laboratory, the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And uh, and they're my three main characters. Oh, by the way, I get questions all the time about, <laughs> you know, why three, you know, teens as your main uh, good characters, since this is quite a violent uh uh, a violent book. You must be clairvoyant because uh, that's one of my questions to you for later on, but go ahead and answer it now. Right. Well, well, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is that's the, the exact age group that every army in the world loves to use as its first-line soldier. Uh-huh. Uh, and there, there's a reason for that. You know, teens, um, uh, they don't have a good sense yet of their mortality. And, and that's one reason. And the other reason is as a teenager, at that age, um, they're out to prove themselves, mm-hmm. not just to other people, and not just the guys, the girls, too. Uh, and you'll find in my series, I believe in very strong uh, female characters in the, in the series, but, uh, but, they, but these teens are out to uh, prove to others how good they are. And if you leave a teenager alone, they'll drive their car as fast as they can drive it. <laughs> they'll cliff dive, rock climb, any extreme sport, extremes. I'm sure you can go up on the slopes. And you watch these guys ski, or these girls ski, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the things they're trying are just mind-boggling. But that's that's the nature, that adventurous spirit that drives them will make them do things that other people won't do. Um, so that was one reason. But the other reason why I chose uh, these uh, these young people is, uh, you know, there's a couple of kinds of characters that, that uh, writers can use in their stories, and one kind is commonly used, which is, you know, this is the person who already is who they're going to be, you know, the James Bonds or uh, Columbo or, or even a really messed up character like uh, uh, Adrian Monk, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which is this obsessive, compulsive detective guy. Uh, but you know one thing about him. At, no matter what he goes through in this story that's being told about him, um, he's going to be exactly the same guy at the end of that. as he, I mean, He's going to be just as messed up at the end of it as he was at the beginning of it. Uh, so he's not going to be changed by his circumstances. But a character I find more interesting is uh, a character that probably thinks they know who they are, who he or she is. Uh, they've got an image of themselves, in other words. But they've never been, uh, you know, through horrible, horrible stress for an, uh, an extended period of time. And that kind of a character, if you put them through the meat grinder uh, of just just terrible, terrible uh, events and pressure. Um, the facade of who they thought they were comes cracking them off and peeling away, and the reader discovers at the same time that the character does uh, what they're really made of underneath and, and the person that they really are, which is oftentimes way different than, than what they thought they were back mm-hmm. in their comfortable former lives. So anyway, that's why I pick these kids. I put, I take them in their like overly comfortable lives at the beginning of the story, and put that through the shredder. Uh, mm-hmm. in the so series. people can identify with them right away, right? And watch but, the metamorphosis as it goes along, also. But getting back to your uh, your question about the technologies, these kids end up stumbling on to uh, a cave that has. And where they discover a second alien craft, that's the name of the book, The Second Ship. Mm-hmm. And it's not the one mm-hmm. the government had, but, but uh, being who they are, uh, you know, their father's working at the National Laboratory, uh, they know they should turn this thing over. It's an important find. But they also know that if they do that, um, their one chance to take a look at the thing is gone forever. 
because that'll be locked up and secured, and, and they'll never get a chance to take a peek at it. So they do probably what we would do. Uh, they, they go try poking around to see if they can uh, see anything. Well, it turns out, um, and what the reader has discovered earlier, is that when these two craft got to, uh, uh, got to Earth back in the 40s, they got here and they were locked in combat with each other, and they ended up shooting each other down. And the government found one right away, and the second one isn't discovered until these uh, high school kids stumble upon it. Uh, well, as they, they managed to get inside because there's a hole punched into it, and, uh, and they actually end up accidentally activating some equipment uh, that establishes a direct mental link between them and the uh, computers on the ship, uh, which ends up causing them some significant problems mm-hmm. and side effects. Uh, but the bottom line is that's one of the technologies that a lot of people um, have told me, well, that seems a bit unbelievable. Uh, but that's one of the ones that we are getting very, very close on right now. Um, I'm sure you've heard, without getting into anything classified, you know, you probably heard a lot of stories about uh, blind people that are getting uh, certain implants uh, that right. allow them mm-hmm. to see what a camera Sensors. sees mm-hmm. by, by a direct connection into their brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's uh, many examples of programs working right now to let paralyzed people control their computers by putting a, a, essentially a headset on their heads that measures their brain patterns. And the computer analyzes patterns looking for specific commands like move the mouse mm-hmm. cursor to the right or to the left, etc. Isn't that something like Stephen Hawkins has? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and, well, his is a little bit different, but, but that's essentially the, the thing. These computers are starting to analyze the brain patterns and mm-hmm. recognize, well, and interpret them. And, and that is getting better and better uh, by the minute. I mean, they're, they're able to, you know, there's differences between different people's brain waves, uh, but they're getting good at such things as recognizing common patterns between different people, even though there are significant differences in, in the way people are thinking, uh, you know, the exact brain patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that's, of, uh, that's exciting and concerning is... Uh, it's great from the idea of being able to uh, to control systems, to fly aircraft, to do things like that by thinking about what you want done. Um, but it's also very dangerous from a civil liberties standpoint uh, because who's to say that uh, this ability to understand what your brain patterns are telling the computer uh, isn't used in a way that extracts information without your consent. This is it. This is it. Yeah, big brother thing. Uh, so go break, so there's a lot of around. exciting things going on, but, uh, but people need to keep a careful eye on how these things are uh, released to the public. Absolutely. We're coming up to the bottom of the hour right now, Richard. What I would like to do is just do a five-minute break. What I do is I read out the call letters of all the stations that listen to us. It takes about five, seven minutes. When we come back, I have a question for you. I would like to talk a little bit about S4 Papoose Dry Lake Bed, 15 miles south of Area 51. (laughs) And this is going to lead into, it's kind of a segue that's going to lead into a question is, what does the government know that we don't, and what are they covering up? So that's something I want to ask you when we come back. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. 
The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM. The name of the show is Night Fright. I'm your host, Brent Holland, and tonight we're speaking with an electric guest. His name is Richard Phillips. He's a former Army Ranger, and uh, he went to the Military Academy at West Point. He also did a lot of top-secret work uh, for the government in terms of national defense, and we're talking about alien technology that perhaps has been back-technologied, and we're using it now... We're getting into all kinds of various... We're right on the edge of trying to get Richard to to disclose things that (laughs) he's able to because he has a top-secret clearance, but he's not able to on the other side. So it's a fine line we walk, but but we are walking it tonight. He's got a great book out called The Second Ship, which is available at Amazon.com. Richard, what's your website, by the way, my friend? Well, it's it's conveniently called SecondShip.com, spelled out. Okay. So... And people can get a hold of me on that. I've got my email address. They can read excerpts, that type of thing. Okay. Also, folks, I want to direct you towards the Night Fright website. The Night Fright website is www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just go to Richard's bio and the synopsis for tonight's show on the right-hand side to that is the book cover of the second ship. Just click on that. That'll take you right to his website where you can pick up the book. So very easy to get to, www.nightfrightshow.com. CKLU 96.7 FM is what you're listening to. Laurentian University, beautiful day today. Beautiful day, better than what we had in July. I don't know what this summer was about, but... Man, was it ever beautiful today. Sudbury, Ontario, and we broadcast every Wednesday from 10 p.m. to midnight. And I want to say hey to Deborah Frankel, the GM here. I don't know how she does it, but she does it every week. She manages to find the money for this show. Not that anybody makes any money off this because we're all volunteers, but it does cost money for electricity. We are not funded by anybody, folks. This is strictly a volunteer thing and uh, costs a whack of dough to keep a radio station on the air. But she manages to do it week in, week out. And I want to say thank you very much to Deborah Franco. You're also listening to Caper Radio at Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, God's Country, as my grandfather used to call it. Wednesdays from 3.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. in the afternoon, Matthew Burke. How you doing, buddy? Hope things are well with you. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Rockin' Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay rocks, folks. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but you got to get there. Sunday nights at midnight. I want to say hi to Jason Wellwood, who's the general manager there. CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the Eastern Townships in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Saturdays from 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I want to say hi to David Teasdale. And if you're listening right now, just a little bit from Montreal. So if you're listening in Montreal, merci beaucoup, vous êtes très gentil. And uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening and making Night Fright the number one station in our time slot. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba in beautiful Winnipeg, Manitoba, another beautiful university campus here in Canada. We're always blessed with these great, great universities. Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. I want to say hey to Jared McKittyak. Sound FM 100.3 FM. University of Waterloo, Waterloo, Ontario. That's Sunday nights, Monday mornings, 
2 a.m. to 6 a.m. That's three shows back-to-back. So you get a f- three full shows of Night Fright back-to-back Sunday mornings from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And I want to say hi to Road Dog. How you doing, buddy? Hope things are well with you. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge in Lethbridge, Alberta. Another great university. I want to say hi to everybody in Lethbridge. Lethbridge rocks. Friday nights at midnight. So I want to say hi to Alan Gillespie. CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley in beautiful, beautiful Abbotsford, BCF. British Columbia, wherever you are, it's stunningly beautiful. Just a gorgeous place to be. Thursdays from 2 p.m. and Friday mornings at 2 a.m. Hi, Amos. Amos Evans, my buddy. CFUR 88.7, University of Northern BC, another BC campus. Snuggled neatly in the mountains, Prince George, British Columbia. Friday nights, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. I want to say hi to Christopher Earl. Now, the Night Fright website, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you can find a plethora of things. For example, there's a whole archive of shows that date back just about a year when we started broadcasting on the Internet. And uh, there's archives there of the Kennedy assassination special we had last year. Oh, speaking of Kennedy assassination special, we are indeed having another Kennedy assassination special right through the month of November. 46 years. can't believe it's 46 years. Unbelievable. This year we have a lot of special guests lined up. First-person witnesses. Last year we had a lot of researchers on, and we talked about the research uh, right up to date. And uh, this year, I've decided to try and get first-person witnesses, people that were right in Daly Plaza when that awful, awful assassination occurred. We've also got Dr. Robert McClellan coming on. He was the surgeon. I'm trying to do six six things at once. We're alone in the studio here, folks, when we do a show, and you have to push buttons and slide sliders and get computers and all kinds of stuff happening so it's multitasking it's most most tasking dr robert mcclelland he was the surgeon who was responsible uh for emergency that particular day he was at parkland hospital and he worked on a dying a mortally wounded john f kennedy so he's going to be telling his story and uh, his recollections uh we have abraham bolden And you all know Abraham Bolden. He was on the show last year. He's the first African-American Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK himself. And what a riveting story he has to tell. After the assassination, of course, he became a whistleblower, subsequently framed for a crime he did not commit. And to this day, he is still trying to clear his name, even though the person that came out, the main witness against him, came out and uh, right away said he had perjured himself. He was forced uh, to lie about this crime because the Secret Service uh, forced him to. So it's an incredible story, folks. You're going to want to catch that one. And we have many, many more guests lined up. Also, coming up in October, we have Haunted Halloween. And I've just secured a guest today. His name is Michael Stone. He's going to be on, I believe it's the 17th of October. And he's got a book out called Anatomy of a serial killer. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah, in the middle of the night we're going to be talking about serial killers. You can't miss that one. Coming back again is Canada's Most Haunted. Now you remember last time she came in, she had just come in from a haunting and virtually was telling the story about this little four-year-old boy with a quote-unquote 
invisible friend that was no friend. Riveting show and just incredible. All kinds of great stuff coming up. You can see the, all, all the archives, the you know, stuff on the uh, Martin Luther King assassination, Bobby Kennedy, Bigfoot. Richard show will be up there next week. The Tree Museum from a couple of weeks ago, Kathleen Kaufman was here, as you know. Incredible amount of stuff there. All free for you to download. Take them to the cottage with you. Take them on a long car drive. Keep the kids busy. All that stuff is there free. There's a ton of pictures you can check out. There's a great ghost story sent to me by a student from McGill University in Montreal. Check that out. That's up there under a little section called Bizarre. And if you have any of those types of stories, any sightings you've seen, any photos, send them on along. www.nightfrightshow.com www.nightfrightshow.com You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. And we are back. We are speaking tonight with Richard Phillips. Richard Phillips has written a book called The Second Ship, which is available at Amazon.com. Or as I said before, just go to the Night Fright website and just click on the book cover associated with the show and it'll take you right to a spot where you can get it it's a great book folks it's three young teenagers that take you right through the whole story and it talks about alien technology and the various things that take place i don't want to give too much of it away for sure we're also talking about top secret technologies richard himself has a top secret clearance just before the break i had put a question to him what does the government know that we don't know and what will the government reveal so richard we're back with you my friend thanks for joining us tonight uh you're welcome so you want me to answer that do you? well you're, <laughs> you're a guy on the inside my friend something that <laughs> well, none of us have the advantage of well you know and we're gonna have to tiptoe around that one a little bit because uh i can't certainly can't directly answer that uh, <laughs> although but okay. um fire away but what i can do and, you know, when I set about to write uh, the series of novels that were set at Los Alamos mm-hmm. and took a look at this very thing, um, uh, you know, essentially, I think all of the information is available for people that are willing to put the, uh, put the facts together for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, you, st- you can start with my background. Uh, you can read the novels. And I guarantee you there's a lot of, uh, of current-day real science in there, and there's a lot of uh, science uh, that is not classified because we can't quite do it yet, but that we're on the verge of doing. Uh, and I, by the verge of doing, I'm not talking about 10 years or 20 years down the pipe. I'm talking about some of this uh, uh, beginning to be possible within the next uh, two computer cycles, or that's four years, uh, the way I refer to it. Can you give us Um, some examples of what you're referring to? Well, um, you know, for one thing, one of the things you you referred to in your question was, uh, essentially was talking probably about Bob Lazar and and his claims about Area 51 and S4 and and topics like that. Um, Well, the closest I want to get to that is in the uh, the, uh, opening prologue chapter of the uh, of the second ship uh, I spent a chapter t- uh, it flashes back to 1977 which is not 1947 it's like 30 mm-hmm, years later mm-hmm. uh, 
and uh, and it's in this uh, underground. The setting is there's this huge tunnel uh, with the railroad tracks going down through it, and it ends at this in this cavern uh, that's below Groom Lake, uh, Nevada, which I'm sure everybody that listens to you is familiar with uh, what that is. For those uh, that aren't, could you just tell them very quickly? Uh, well, Groom Lake uh, is in a place called Area 51, and it's well known. I mean, there's nothing classified about the fact that it exists there. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the government has admitted to a lot of uh, activity there, um, just have not admitted to what a lot of people would like them to admit to goes on there. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, um, it's, a, it's a very classified area, that, uh, and, um, and this Groom Lake is actually this dry lake bed. It's, uh, it, there is no water in Groom Lake unless it just rained. Um, and it's uh, in satellite photography. It looks uh, really bright, like white. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's uh, but it's it's desert, and it's a flat desert lake bed. Well, uh, the setting for this particular chapter, the opening sequence, is in this tunnel below Groom Lake. And uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving night. Uh, nobody's there except nobody's down in this tunnel except for this uh, this one guy, who's this uh, uh, military researcher, and he's. Uh, uh, you know, some people have speculated. He turns out to be the bad guy in the in the series eventually, uh, which, which I find unfortunate that some people speculate that he's a pattern, he's a guy mod- that I that I copied after myself. Uh, but <laughs> I don't admit to that at all. Uh, uh, anyway, this guy is uh, named Donald R. Stevenson, and uh, and the only reason he's down there by himself is. Within this facility is this damaged alien spacecraft the government has had for 30 years. And they've been trying to re- uh, do some reverse engineering on it, mm-hmm. but they haven't gotten anywhere. They haven't been able to scratch the surface. Uh, you know, they've tried high-energy particle beams, arc welders. They can't even heat the thing up. Uh, diamond drills, nothing touches it. Um, it has been damaged in some way uh, uh, that they know had to be from another uh, extraterrestrial source because they can't do anything to damage it uh, and and it's essentially seems to be inoperative uh, but they but because they've been trying to open this thing for 30 years they have not uh, and hadn't haven't made any progress you know the the initial excitement has kind of waned over time I mean they still are researching it um, but uh, but they've started to take their weekends off with their families uh, most people go home uh, at night uh, well, this one guy, this one researcher, um, has finally gotten permission uh, to set up a, an experiment of his own design against the side of the, sh- the ship, but only on the condition he does it over Thanksgiving long weekend, and he has everything put back away like it was uh, by the time the other scientists show back up Monday morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it ends up being his experiment, which is actually, unfortunately, again for me, uh, uh, in the analogies that people draw, uh, but he, he um, sets up an experiment that's based on Cherenkov radiation, which happens to be what I did my thesis on at Los Alamos, uh, which turns out to be the one that actually ends up opening, uh, opening up the ship. Uh, and, uh, and so that sets the, uh, the, the story going there. But this area below, uh, below Groom Lake, uh, and I'm not... Uh, you know, there's been speculation for a long time that among various people, including uh, statements by guys like Lazar, mm-hmm. um, 
that these uh, big variety of underground tunnels uh, and train systems, et cetera, exist there. I'm certainly not confirming that. I'm just saying that within the context of my uh, story, that happens to be the the opening sequence. So do you give credence to, to Lazar's story? Certainly Stanton Friedman does. Well, Stanton Friedman, uh, you know, I don't put myself in the same category as Stan Friedman. He's, he's uh, done research on this stuff uh, for years. He's an expert. Uh, in fact, I just, uh, uh, I'll defer to him uh, because... You know, while I'm, my area of expertise is, uh, is probably a lot greater in the computer sciences field, okay, sir. Uh, Stan has a ton of expertise in a variety, in mm-hmm. a broad variety of areas, and he spent years researching this stuff. Um, I was just, <laughs> the funny thing mm-hmm. about, about Stan is I was just in a, uh, a booth across from him. Uh, we were set up at the uh, International UFO Museum there oh, in Roswell sure, sure. Uh, for yeah, the yeah. anniversary. Yeah, he was just there. Uh, That's right. Yeah, right. And so I was there. I gave a hour and a half lecture there, and uh, and Stan always gives lectures. Uh, uh, but but like I said, I I consider him the real expert on the subject, and uh, and don't want to. Uh, compare myself in that category. Can I just interrupt you for a second? Folks, remember I had mentioned the archives. Stanton Friedman was here just oh, a few weeks ago, uh, July 29th. So just go to the archives, www.nightfrightshow.com. Check out the archives, and Stanton Friedman's show is right there. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sure, and, and I highly recommend that, by the way. Thank you. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. So, yeah, let's go back to that technology. What does the government know that we don't? And do you think we're getting closer to disclosure? Of course, we've got, you know, Obama's bringing in a new wave or supposedly a new wave of openness. (laughs) We'll see. Oh, that sounds qualified and skeptical already, my friend. (laughs) This whole su- subject yeah. revolves around, uh, well, it re- revolves around the notion that if the government, you know, the gov- one of the government lines is, if we would have had something, it would have come out by now, mm-hmm. uh, we've got nothing. Uh, and even what the British are releasing all, all mm-hmm, in recent mm-hmm. months, mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at it, it's really nothing of importance. They're releasing sighting reports and stuff like this. Uh, the, it's not the good stuff that everybody's looking for. Yeah, it's not the meaty stuff, is it? Uh, right. No. So, so this, these are just what was reported. That's right. Uh, not the conclusions. Not the uh, not the uh, essential research that, that mm-hmm. people are looking for. Now, me, what I will do is I will tell you how to figure it out for yourself. Um, okay. Uh, what What I'm proposing is that. Um, you know, when you look at, at guys that have done the real legwork, like uh, Stan Friedman, mm-hmm. uh, etc., they're trying to put the pieces of a very large puzzle together. I, I look at the problem a totally different way, and I look at it in the same way I was talking to you earlier about uh, from artificial intelligence perspective. Yes, that, you know, we were trying to, we, uh, the, the computer science community, was trying to put that puzzle together and essentially failed miserably to put that puzzle together. Um, we could not uh, really design, I mean, there's still efforts going on, but we could not design 
an intelligent computer using the techniques we were trying to use. Mm-hmm. But, but what uh, uh, but what is happening is something surprising uh, even to many of us in the uh, in the computer science field and especially in the robotics uh, uh, field of research is breakthroughs are happening in unexpected ways. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, and by that I mean um, uh, we are we are seeing uh, computers do things, uh, learn to do things, which we want them to learn to do, um, through training like neural networks and genetic algorithms. And, and for, the, for the layman, what that really means is we have networks of computing systems that are capable of very simple little things, and they are ingesting data from the outside, huge amounts. Uh, and a lot of times it's things that we wouldn't even consider relevant to the problem. <coughs> I mean, they're just plugged into the Internet, essentially, and they're fed boatloads of information. And as they ingest this information, they start to weight that, uh, by that I mean assign importance to certain bits of information mm-hmm. and, get, and start grouping together in ways as if they're scurrying around uh, a problem and... And as they scurry around that problem, they suddenly discover a way to do something. And then they lock that in. And, and then the next thing, they're scurrying around looking at other things. And so the puzzle goes together in a weird way that we the humans don't think like. Um, you know, uh, we like to think of a problem uh, in physics or whatever, and we like to design it out. We like to understand it from beginning to end. Um, it needs to make sense based on a model we've got in our mind. In a linear fashion. Right. The way computers uh, do it is much more like pickup sticks. Um, uh-huh. to, or if you've spilled a big box of wooden match sticks on the floor, and and if a computer was uh, you know was solving a problem of how to get through those match sticks, it would it would put a whole boatload. Of, I'm talking about a modern computer, mm-hmm. uh, one of these ingestors. Uh, they would assign a whole boatload of little processors looking at all of these little matchsticks simultaneously. And first, one would line up one with another one, not directly, but, but little pathways would start to appear and then disappear as a better pathway was found. And, and they would just arrange them, kind of, it would really seem random for a while, and all at once you'd see a pathway develop. And then the next thing you know, that would be replaced by a different pathway that was better, and the other pathway would die out. So it's not so much by design oh. as it is by uh, by scurrying around and trying everything right. possible. And it's how it's essentially how Deep Blue beat Kasparov in chess. So they're applying that to real world problems. And now to get back to the point of uh, well, the underlying point is: is this based on alien technology? <laughs> that I'm not going to go directly there, but uh, but I will say. Uh, what I promised was you can figure this out for yourself. If we're starting to do things, I mean, if we're starting to um, develop things that we don't fully understand even after it's working, mm-hmm. um, that's what you look for indicators of, okay? We might have figured out how to make it work, but, uh, but we don't understand it uh, even though we got it to working. Um, 
that's a big red flag. And one of the things I've been watching for for years in the computing industry is signs of artificial intelligence or signs mm-hmm. of computers starting to learn on their own. And those signs are popping up left and right. Uh, everything from, like we talked about earlier, pattern recognition, mm-hmm. facial recognition. Mm-hmm. You hear all the time the word data mining. Well, data mining, what that means is it sounds very mundane, but what it means is these, these massively parallel systems are processing these little match, I mean, these piles of matchsticks, which is everybody's information flowing through the system. And they're matching it, looking for, for clues on what's what. And they're learning. And guess what they're learning about? They're learning about you. Mm. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just think that, uh, that we are getting, we are on the very threshold. And, uh, by 2013, there are going to be, That'll be two more generations beyond in computers where we are right now. Not only learning on computers, but computers that are starting to learn what they want to learn on. Let me ask you a question about interfacing now. When we sit at a computer desktop, we have an interface. We have a mouse. We have a keyboard. There is voice recognition technology, but it's all external. There's nothing yet except for what you mentioned before, reading a person's mind. Is that based on... How do I put this without you getting in trouble? Because you do have a top-secret clearance, and we have to walk a fine line here. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll walk it. Okay. You can ask it. I'll, I'll walk. If you get me to tiptoeing too much, uh, uh, well, I, I'll just put on my tap shoes. Let me go at it a different way. Usually when we come up with inventions, it's to satisfy a need or to allow uh, a bit of business to take place, uh, again, to satisfy the need. This sounds almost like the technology is coming first, and then we have to find a need for the technology. How is that? Well, that, that um, in a way, that's true, but even more disconcerting, I think that we are not very far from the technology developing a need uh, to learn on its own. Um, Mm-hmm. And by a, you know, right now it's just ingesting massive amounts of data. Uh, and you're talking about it, the internet. I mean, it is hard to define right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you have got, well, let me take a simple example. Uh, SETI at home. Okay, many people have the SETI screensavers running on their computers, which. Uh, Can you just tell the folks? Extra, that's the search for extraterrestrial intelligence Thank out of you. Berkeley. And what they're doing is Berkeley has a huge problem. Uh, they, well, this particular program at Berkeley, they are trying to find out, um, uh, among other efforts, but they're trying to find out um, if societies out there are sending signals that we can pick up uh, through using mm-hmm. the Arecibo uh, radio telescope in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's so much data, there's so many uh, wavelengths and bands to look through all of this data and so many stars um, that it's too much for no matter how big a supercomputer you have. So they came up with this ingenious approach, which was put uh, kind of put together these data packets, and and everybody that's willing to participate can download for free the SETI at home program and sign up, and and the SETI program will send across the internet these data packets to analyze. Your computer, when you're not using it, mm-hmm. will go into a mode where it's analyzing that data, and when it gets done, it sends the analysis back um, to 
uh, to the main uh, computing systems there at Berkeley, uh, and millions of people have that program running. So millions of uh, of CPU hours are being used every day to help analyze this problem. And I mean, it's not just being used by them; it's being used by uh, you know climate control, uh, climate uh, analysis programs, and those type of things. Hmm. Okay. Um, uh, but but the bottom line of all of that, and the reason I reuse that example, is <laughs> the hmm. the this kind of uh, distributed computing uh, can be used for all sorts of things, and with nobody knowing where all the nodes are. And guess what? Uh, oh, uh, you know this is yeah. this is something that is actually in uh, the third book that I'm working on right now, which is called Wormhole. Um, but uh, one of the scenarios in that book, and I'm not saying this is true, um, is that there is one piece of software that's on everybody's computer. And it's not Windows, necessarily the Windows operating system. But everybody has to have on their system an antivirus software. Well, guess what antivirus software does? Antivirus software scans every piece of data on oh, your computer, man. plus every bit of ingoing and outgoing data that comes in across the Internet That's right. to protect you from viruses. Well, the scenario in Wormhole is that uh, that was originally set up as part of an NSA program uh, that encouraged hackers around the uh, world to... Uh, to create viruses, to attack computers, and then participated uh, secretly with a, uh, w installing a backdoor in all of these antivirus uh, uh, packages that companies release mm -hmm. uh, so that people voluntarily download uh, um, <laughs> antivirus on their system. They've got to have it. They, mm -hmm. they need it to protect their systems. And guess what? The job of the antivirus software is to go through all your data. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they so know it's all about us. Frightening scenario, but it, but it's one that uh, um, is the type of things people need to people need to be aware of. Whoa, that's explosive, Richard. I didn't realize that. You just educated me. Well, I'm not me. saying that is a fact. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying if I was doing it, that's what I would do. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. Close enough for rock and roll, as they say. <laughs> We're at the top of the hour. I'm going to have to do that station break thing again. Folks, we are having a great conversation tonight with an electric, electric guest. Richard Phillips is here. He's got a top secret clearance, and we're talking about modern technologies and the origins of those technologies. And, oh, baby, listen to this. He's walking a fine line right now between what's classified and what's not classified, dropping some subtle hints and some hints that hmm, perhaps aren't so subtle of where those technologies came from in an extraterrestrial sense. How's that for political correctness? You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to CKLU 96.7 FM. I'm your host, Brent Holland. You're listening to Night Fright. We broadcast from the Wrenchin University here in Sudbury every Wednesdays between 10 and midnight at night. You're listening to Caper Radio, Cape Breton University, Sydney, Nova Scotia, Wednesdays between 3.30 and 5.30 p.m. CILU 102.7 FM, Lakehead University in Thunder Bay. Sunday night at midnight, CJMQ 88.9 FM, the voice of the Eastern Townships in 
in Sherbrooke, Quebec, Saturdays from 9 to 11 p.m. CJUM 101.5 FM, University of Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Wednesday nights, Thursday mornings, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Sound FM 100.3 FM, University of Waterloo, beautiful campus. Waterloo, Ontario, Sunday nights, Monday mornings, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. CKXU 88.3 FM, University of Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Alberta. Friday night at midnight to 2 in the morning. CIVL 88.7 FM, University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, B.C. Thursdays at 2 p.m. and another show Friday mornings at 2 a.m. CFUR 88.7 FM, University of Northern B.C. in Prince George, British Columbia. Friday nights, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking with Richard Phillips. He's got a great book out called The Second Ship, which is available at Amazon.com. But if you go to the Night Fright website, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com, you'll see Richard's bio is there. The synopsis for tonight's show is there. Just to the right of that, you're going to see a book cover for The Second Ship. Just click on that. That'll take you right to a place where you can pick up the book. And it's a great book. It's a great ride, folks. You're going to love it. It's a type of book, well, it's pretty good for this time of year, you know. You're, the kids are back at school. You've got a little bit more free time. Or if you're a student, you've got a little bit of free time on the weekends and you want a great sci-fi trip that's based, perhaps, and I'm saying perhaps, with a question mark, on alien technology. Now, Richard, of course, Richard Phillips is a former Army Ranger officer, graduate of uh, West Point in the States, and he's uh, a nuclear physicist, like Stanton Friedman also is uh, a physicist. And it's a really good book because he comes from a background that allows him to kind of take things that he's learned over the years, quote-unquote, in a top-secret fashion, declassified stuff, and insert that type of information in this book. And he's done it very well. He's done it very subtly. And we're talking a little bit about that technology tonight. Also, I want to mention at the Night Fright website, which is www.nightfrightshow.com, you can find a plethora of archives there. And if you're going to go on a long trip across the country, uh, you want something in the car to listen to, there's all kinds of archives there. There's stuff on Area 51. There's shows on Canada's Most Haunted. Um, there's even a show where uh, Tom Lipscomb was here uh, oh, a few months ago, and he's, the, uh, he's a nominee for Pulitzer. He was telling the story about how he went down to Bolivia in the 60s, just after Che Guevara was killed and bribed the guard and picked up Che Guevara's personal diaries. Incredible show. That's there. All kinds of stuff there, folks. There's stuff on UFOs. There's stuff on all the conspiracies. You're going to have a blast there. And the great thing is, it's all free. Just download it. Play it when you want. Keep it on your computer. You're going to have a blast with it. There's other things there as well. You can. There's contact information if you uh, feel so inspired you can certainly send a check off to cklu and help us keep this show on air but more than that it'll help other shows that are here at the station it's a volunteer station it's a university slash community station it'll help the other students that have shows here have newer equipment and um, a better facility and uh, help pay for bills like electricity and things of that nature 
all that information is there. www.nightfrightshow.com. www.nightfrightshow.com. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Let's go back to Richard. Richard, before the break, I wanted to ask you a question, which I unfortunately forgot. I wanted to go back into this whole idea that the government knows stuff that we don't. And I also know the fact that the president does not have the highest clearance in the country. What the hell is that about, Richard? Well, I... I (laughs) You know, one thing I will say, uh, yes, and, sir. and i got to be a little careful talking about this subject. But, I bet. Uh, but um, one of the things that uh, is not incredibly well known, but it's, uh, but it's common knowledge among, I mean, Stan Friedman and those guys uh, talk about it uh, some. Uh, but, you know, uh, really stemming out of the disaster that was uh, the loss of secrecy in the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. um, where the Russians actually found out all the details for making the atomic bomb, despite all the secrecy around it, uh, around that program, mm-hmm. um, the government had to come up with other ways to try to make things more secret. And uh, and um, and there's just layer after layer of it. And some of it, uh, you know, I think a lot of scientists really get frustrated with and think are is very counterproductive. Um, but let me give you an example. When I when I um, uh, graduated from the Naval Postgraduate School, and I'd already worked at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory doing my thesis work there. Yes, sir. Uh, well, when I went to work as a researcher at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, um, I already had a top secret clearance with the uh, Department of Defense. Um, but you know, the national laboratories in the United States are are run by the Department of Energy, not the Department of Defense. I didn't know that. You just educated me. Uh, And they have their own system of clearances, Hmm. okay? And the the clearances don't walk back and forth uh, easily between Department of Defense and Department of Energy. They don't accept each other's clearances. So so consequently, I had to cool my heels for a while um, while... uh, while I was going through the rigmarole of, uh, mm-hmm. of acquiring a DOE uh, high-level clearance called a Q clearance, um, but uh, before I could uh, I could get into some of the places that I needed to uh, get into to do the work that I was supposed to be doing. Um, so that's one of the way they've got different departments that have different whole different schemes of clearance levels and things like that. Um, but the most frustrating part of it is usually associated with something called uh, compartmentalization. And, and uh, what that really is, is even though you might have a top secret clearance or the level of clearance, acute clearance, whatever is required to work on something, uh, when you're assigned to a project and you're working on one of these very, very secret projects, um, they uh, break the project up into parts. So teams of scientists and researchers will be working on one part of the problem, and they will have access to the data in that particular part of the problem, but they're not authorized, even though they've got the same clearance, as the team that's working on another part of the problem, and and maybe in the same facility and in some Mm -hmm. different room uh, or in a different facility. I mean, so the problems are broken up, 
and split out, and different teams are working on parts of it, but no team has all of the pieces to the puzzle. So it's compartment, um, compartmentalization. Right, that's Completely. exactly what it is. Okay. And, uh, and when they do that, what's so frustrating about it is sometimes if you just had the information that the team down the hall, ha- you know, they've got a piece of information you need, you probably have some information they need, both of you could probably solve uh, the problems you're working on mm-hmm. much faster, um, but that's not allowed. Uh, you're not allowed that kind of communication. And what they're trying to stop, of course, is what happened in the Manhattan Project. One person mm-hmm. gathered too much information and That's gave it right. all away. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's very frustrating. And in fact, uh, you know, it's been, I commonly refer to it all as uh, uh, the cone of silence. If anybody's <laughs> seen the old Get Smart show, they used to, they had this ridiculous thing where when mm-hmm. something really secret was going to happen, they'd, add, they'd lower this, this plastic cone mm-hmm. over the table. And, and when that thing came down, nobody could hear what anybody else was saying. Uh, finally, they'd give up in frustration and raise it back up and go to talking again. But that's what it's like. I mean, having that, that cone of silence lowered over the program um, really, uh, I, you know, a lot of cases, I think it unnecessarily slows down research. Uh, now, Richard, this begs a question. What came out on CNN today, there was a Chinese fellow that was picked up. I don't know if you've seen the news right, or not. Yeah. Is it working? Is the compartmentalization actually working? Because it seems that, according to CNN anyways tonight, this Chinese fellow was picked up spying for the Chinese government. He had thousands upon thousands of documents in his basement. You know, everything has flaws in it. Um, okay. And uh, the, when, when I say it's working, sometimes it works frustratingly well. And other times... Uh, there's a hole in the program I see. that, uh, okay. you know, people get sloppy. Sure. Uh, and that's one of the problems is if you don't check something, uh, the government goes out of its way, believe me, to check these programs. Uh, and But uh, people, especially af- after a program's been running for a while, will mm-hmm. get sloppy. Scientists are among the worst uh, because, uh, you know, they'll be working on something, and they they like to work long hours, and sometimes they'll take something home. It should, they should never take anything classified home, but uh, papers get mixed together. They're not rigorous on, uh, you know, how they're putting it together. And next thing you know, it ends up in the wrong hands. Um, now, if this guy had thousands and thousands of documents, that's outlandish, but, uh, uh, but that's the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he must have been taking everything he ever worked on home. Well, they said three generations, so 30 years he's been doing it. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's, I'd say that's not uh, not very good uh, <laughs> for, for it to slip through the cracks that long. I mean, that's that's obviously a serious... Uh, Breach? A serious flaw in the system. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just thought I'd ask that and throw that out there. I want to ask you some more about disclosure. For a second, folks, we're speaking with uh, with Richard Phillips. We're talking about his book, The Second Ship. And Richard has a top secret clearance, and he's written a book, kind of based on the knowledge he's acquired. Let's put it that way, over the years working on, on top secret projects, and some of that kind of sways into the extraterrestrial realm, UFO technology, to be precise. Just for imagination's sake, let's say we have been visited. What would be the reason? that there has been no public disclosure to this point? Well, I, I'll, uh, I, I will address that as best I can. Thank okay. you. The, uh, I always, uh, you know, one of the big points 
that comes out in my Row Agenda series. Uh, by the way, that's the name of the overall series, the second ship being the first book. And you can, you, uh, folks that are interested can find yes, all sir. kinds of information on it on secondship.com, which is my website. And also my email address, you can email me. I get a ton of email, so <laughs> that's great. I may not respond to everyone, but I do try to read everyone. Mm-hmm. In fact, my publicist is trying to shut down my direct email access. She wants everything to go through to her. To go through her. Uh, <laughs> is that Elizabeth? But, but I'm fighting that. Is that uh, Elizabeth, so, uh, Richard? Huh? Is that Elizabeth? Uh, no, my uh, my publish my my new publicist is actually a gal named Sheila Martin. Elizabeth is great, uh, uh, but that's my publicist with I see. Okay. Uh, Synergy Books, and my personal publicist is a gal named uh, Sheila Martin. Okay. Um, and she's here in Phoenix. Okay. So, let's see, where were we going? Well, you, you were going to give us a little bit of a hint of the disclosure. Pro- you are going to put it a certain way. Oh, I why haven't we, yeah. why am we been told what the hell's going on? Yeah. Um, essentially. In 2009. Uh, I can understand 50 years ago with the Cold War and everything, but it's 2009 now. We've seen Star Trek. We've seen all these other shows with an alien theme. Uh, you know, that comes up heavily in the... In the Second ship in the row agenda, mm-hmm. and the, the 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 thing that I uh, that I kind of preach in that underneath the subtext of the of the whole plot is uh, you know people have to use their own heads to dig some of this out. The uh, you, you know it should have come out. It's unbelievable that stuff hasn't come out before now. Yeah, uh, but. But you also have to ask another side of that question. And, you know, the series is called The Row Agenda, and it's all about agendas on multiple levels, the government agenda, the scientific team agendas. But also, you have to ask yourself a question. If you believe, like many people do, uh, that, uh, that we have been visited and that the government does know we've been visited and has evidence of that, then uh, you have to ask yourself the question also, why haven't these aliens uh, revealed themselves to us? Exactly. I mean, more than just uh, an occasional sighting, mm-hmm. why haven't they gone public? Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big question, and I guarantee you, you even ask, have to ask yourself the question, why would they be coming here? Now, um, you know, one thing I always like to point to in our own history is when we were busy exploring the new lands uh, from Europe mm-hmm. and a variety of countries over there, um, not all of that was just out of curiosity that we wanted to find, and you know, find out about how the natives lived on the far side of the ocean. Um, that was sponsored by governments, and they had agendas, and they wanted certain That's things. Right. Mm-hmm. And and we have to imagine that in this cosmos, um, there are. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to think we're alone and that we're the most advanced species out there. I mean, all you got to do is look up at the sky and count as yeah. many stars and galaxies as you can count. And it's and ridiculous. I, and between you and me, Richard, I pray to God we aren't the most advanced species no, out there. I can guarantee you we're not. Thank no, oh. I'll, I'll say that. I, okay. I would absolutely guarantee it, but I will say that it's highly unlikely. Let's put it like that. Okay, that's um, that's. Thank you very much for that information. <laughs> thank you kindly, sir. A slip of the tongue there. That's but, fine. Uh, but on the uh, on the side of why would they come here? Well, yeah. one thing that uh, you know, there are bound to be benevolent species out there, and there's also bound to be um, others uh, that are bent upon something not quite so benevolent. Uh, 
um, Malevolent. Yeah. So, so mm. <laughs> yeah. that's one of my so, questions for you too. So, so the uh, with that kind of an assumption in mind, and and if you if you say why would they come here? Well, we do happen to have one of the most valuable things in this universe, and that's a beautiful planet that's mm-hmm. uh, very conducive to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are sprinkled around the galaxy, uh, the galaxies. Uh, in a pretty large number, but they're still really, really rare among all of the star systems that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so there's plenty of reason for someone to be interested if you've got the technology uh, to come and visit a, a planet like Earth. Now, the question about why wouldn't they reveal themselves, I think, is an even more interesting one than, than why wouldn't the government reveal what it's got. Mm-hmm. Um, Naturally, governments want to keep whatever advantage they can have if they feel like it is an advantage uh, to them technologically. But on the other side, uh, the only thing I can come up with, and I'm I'm certainly don't know the answer to that. Yes, sir. Um, but but the thing that seems logical to me is if you if you look back and put the pieces together and say, okay, we've had these jumps throughout our history where we've suddenly acquired great increases in technology. And right now we're going through a huge speed up in technology, um, but we still haven't, you know, no aliens have come out and just announced to the world we are here. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have to say that they're waiting for something, and per, and it seems likely to me that what they would be waiting for, if you assume that that, that is the case, is they are waiting for us to hit a point in our technology uh, when we're ready for what they have. Uh, in mind. That could go and either way, Richard. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Do you think one of the reasons could be that they're already here amongst us? I, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, oh, Richard. Oh, my goodness me. Do they shapeshift? Are they able to shapeshift to look like us? Or? Well, I, I, you know, I have not uh, okay, okay. <laughs> got personal I- information of such, <laughs> of okay. such a thing. Okay, that sounds like uh okay. Thank you very much, my friend. Uh, Richard Phillips, of course, has a top-secret clearance, folks, and we're trying to... Uh, or at least I'm trying to get a little bit. I'm trying to be a sponge here and get as much out of the poor. Well, I was laughing because the other night I got hammered by by Ian Punnett on uh, Coast to Coast. He pounded me all night long about <laughs> this stuff. Uh, he's uh, a good guy. I like him so much. He's good, but uh, and we had a lot of fun with it. But great. But uh, but anyway, we had a big call in and. Uh, <laughs> He just pounded away all night long trying to get me to loosen my tongue. Disclosure. I felt like I was in one of those interrogation cells over in uh, over in the Middle East. Yeah, he's a good guy. I like him a lot, actually. Uh, this, uh, we had George Norrie on last week. Uh, George was gracious enough to come on our show. Folks, uh, George Norrie, of course, is the host of Coast to Coast EM. Now, one of the reasons why, I'll just tell you very quickly, Richard, why I started this show is because I came here uh, two years ago with my honey, and she's got a PhD in mining, and it's a big mining place here. When we got here, I had been a Coast fan since art started in 92, 93. <laughs> 
but right. you couldn't get it here. So, so now you're piping it in. Well, well, what happens? Well, you can get it over the internet, of course. Sure. But uh, so I said, you know what? Instead of sitting on my uh, tuchus, uh, I can get out and volunteer and uh, try and start a little show exactly like that. And the Darren thing has taken off like a rocket. It's now syndicated right across the country. Mind you, it's through the university slash community radio networks. Nonetheless, I get emails like you do, like from everywhere. Uh, flocking to it en masse so I'm very very honored it's still a volunteer gig for me and uh, as far as I can see it will remain so I actually compose music for television and film uh, NASA for, <laughs> for a, as an example um, it seems kind of funny to, to say well NASA. I was really uh, really thrilled to get a chance to come on your show too after getting a, a chance to come on uh, on Coast to Coast AM the other night so you're very so kind you're very very kind okay so you've given us some very, very tantalizing tidbits here. Now, I want to ask you, do you think, uh, you'd mentioned 2013. Well, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago. His name is Robert Gleason. He's written a book about 2012, the Mayans. Now, one, one of the Mayan prophecies for the end of the world is that it will emanate from a black hole in the middle of our universe. Now, my next question to you, is there a chance we could find ourselves in an extraterrestrial war? Uh, well, <laughs> Or am I jumping ahead here? Well, uh, the reason I'm laughing about that is because uh, the underlying theme of the whole uh, Roe Agenda series is uh, that we are in the middle of an ex- extraterrestrial war. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you've got to remember, I'm talking, uh, quote, science fiction here. Uh, but but in in the uh, the backstory on the series is uh, two ships got here in the 1940s and uh, mm. one was trying to stop the other one from what it was intent on doing and they ended up shooting each other down and then uh, the co- the government of course picked up one ship and and mm-hmm. started this whole row project that ended up well it was initially at, at Area 51 and then moved to Los Alamos right uh, reverse engineering that ship and. Uh, and then these high school uh, juniors whose dads work at the lab end up stumbling on the second ship years later, current day, uh, in, uh, in that really rugged country around Los Alamos where the, uh, you know, steep canyons and cliffs and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that those ships had been at war. Uh, one of the societies was bent on aggressive expansion, and the other society was bent on stopping them uh, from expanding. Uh, and even though um, uh, at the time these ships are found, there are no uh, living aliens on either one of them, they, the agenda hasn't necessarily died uh, with either ship. Uh, in a way, you can think of it as they still the, the computer systems on board are, uh, are even more advanced than the kind of thing I'm talking about, mm-hmm. us being on the verge of having. Uh, so... So the intent remains within those systems, those that are still working, and they're badly damaged, uh, to continue the mission. And one of these, uh, well, they're, and they're completely different star uh, travel technologies. Now, one of the, this, this brings up another real-world subject. Uh, uh, I'll get off yes, the novel sir. for a second. But, That's okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the big topics uh, that... You know, guys like Stan Friedman mm-hmm. think about, et cetera, is, is how would these things travel? How, how would you do it? 
Uh, well, for one thing, I think it's completely funny uh, that physicists, uh, every, every century, the, the current scientific community thinks that they pretty well have it figured out how things work. <laughs> Okay, mm-hmm. they have the model almost complete, <laughs> and then a hundred years later, it's it's really laughable uh, what they thought at that time. And we are exactly the same way right now. Mm-hmm. You know, scientists have the model; they think they're very close to. In fact, they they are so excited if they can just get the doggone uh, large hadron collider fired up again, uh, which is scheduled to happen in a uh, couple of months at uh, uh, just outside of uh, Geneva. Uh, and of course, I'm talking about the super collider. Uh, that's the huge one, uh, just out, just uh, spanning the border between France and and Switzerland. Thank. You. Uh, Can you just anyway, tell the folks very quickly what that's all about? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a side topic, but it is one that comes up heavily in Wormhole, uh, right. which is book three. Yeah, I'm sorry uh, to get you off topic. It's just that I'm sure there's a lot uh, of yeah, folks. No, uh, I know what, what it is. What that is is yeah. uh, there's a huge, the most expensive physics project in the world for the last several years, and we have been cooperating with it, although we don't have the lead on it. Mm-hmm. It's really a European uh, initiative, initiative yeah. is to build this huge 27-kilometer tunnel. It's a, it's a 100 meters or a little more than a football field underground. And this tunnel, so it's 27 kilometers around or 17 miles for those people in the United States. Uh, and and in it is this the is this huge accelerator, particle accelerator, that accelerates particles as close as possible to the speed of light uh, using uh, these super cold magnets, and and so they get particles charged particles going one direction, they get particles going the other direction, and they collide them together, and when the uh, collision happens, it produces it's designed to produce energies. Uh, that are approaching the energies shortly after the Big Bang. I mean, so huge amounts of energy released in these collisions. And and the primary thing they're looking for, I mean, they're looking for lots of things, but one of the huge detectors that they've got at, the, at what they call interaction points, or IPs, um, and that's where the collisions happen, is this thing called the Atlas detector. And there's others. There's several others. Uh, but this atlas detector is ju- is a monstrous thing. Uh, it's layers upon layers of different uh, types of detectors, and they're looking for the types of particles that get created in these collisions. Well, uh, uh, what they're really looking for is something called the Higgs boson or the God particle. Exactly. Uh, and the God particle is uh, is predicted by the standard model. And when I say the standard model, it's it's the model that they have of how things work right now. And if they could only find this Higgs boson, it would close a huge hole in the current theory. It would tell them that they, it would reassure them that they're right, okay, when they're current thinking about how things work. And Stephen Hawking, who's the, uh, the brilliant uh, British scientist that's in a wheelchair, uh, he uh, jokingly said a while back that the most interesting thing that could happen out of this whole thing is for them not to find the Higgs boson, um, which he and I sincerely doubt that they will, um, because that'll, that'll show them that uh, they're wrong, that the standard model is drastically wrong. Um, so, 
So anyway, one other little aside about the, the large hadron collider that many mm-hmm. people know is um, there's been uh, some scientists that speculate the energies that they're going to create in that thing will be large enough to produce a microscopic black hole and certain other strange particles. Um, and and if that thing was to stabilize, um, then that would that would be a bad a bad bad thing. Uh, uh, now, most of the scientists, you know, before everybody gets all spun up about it, I mean, most of the scientists on the program and around the world uh, think the probability cross-sections or the probabilities of that happening are way too small uh, to worry about. And even if it did happen, even if a microscopic black hole did form, it would um, evaporate within a tiny fraction of a second. Uh, but just to let you know, there are people out there that uh, say, hey, the probability is not zero. Uh, that 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 could form and stabilize. So uh, so that uh, uh, that's just something to keep in mind as they because they have done firings with that thing. In fact, it it uh, it was firing last year. That's right. Uh, yeah. When it broke down, mm-hmm. and uh, and that uh, that public story about the breakdown is one of the topics I get into in uh, in Wormhole, which is book three. Ah, uh, do you know something that we don't know, my friend? Uh, what the, makes you say that? <laughs> the way you said public story. <laughs> oh well, well, yeah, it was. Uh, well, let's just say for don't, imagination. Don't anything so. into that. Okay, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to scrutinize every sentence you say from now. <laughs> well, one of the uh, one of the funny things I get in a lot of emails is because <laughs> I'm when I'm talking on shows like this, you know, people put mm-hmm. two and two together, and. Uh, and they know, based on my background and what I've done, yes, sir. and then I'm writing about a laboratory that I actually did some work at and about some subjects I actually have some knowledge of, uh, and I'm writing it in a science fiction thriller type of novel, but um, they ha- they like to spend a lot of time uh, emailing me about uh, things they think they've put together out of my novels uh, that uh, that they want me to confirm or deny. Okay. And... Uh, and usually, I, I I will say warm or uh, cold, and that's about about as close as I'll get. <laughs> okay. Just let me do this two minute break. Uh, I'm not going to list the uh, the call letters. I'm just going to tell folks who we're speaking with, and because uh, we've got a lot to cover, and we've only got a half hour left, and I really want to spend the rest of the time focused on uh, your story, my friend. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, we're speaking with Richard Phillips tonight, and he's got a great book out. It's the first book of a trilogy called, the trilogy is called The Roe, help me out here, Richard. Yeah, The Roe Agenda, Thank and that's you. spelled R-H-O. And you can just Google it, The Roe Agenda, there and all kinds go. of yeah. uh, links will come up to my site and others. He's got a riveting book out called The Second Ship. It's a ride and a half, folks. And Richard has a background, top secret clearance. Excuse me, We are walking a fine line tonight, folks, right on the border of what he can disclose and what is still classified. So we're having a lot of fun with that. Just go to the Night Fright website, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on his book cover. It's right there in the front page. That'll take you right to his website, actually. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host... 
We're back with Richard Phillips, and Richard, let's talk some more about this whole disclosure, what the government knows and doesn't want to tell us, and and everything else. And, you know, you, you just said something that I'm scrutinizing again, the public story. How many public stories are out there? Now, let me put something to you just as an example. We do a lot of work on the conspiracies at Night Fright. Uh, we had a whole special last year on uh, the JFK assassination, Martin Luther King, and then Bobby the following month. Um, we're going to be doing some more on that, by the way, folks, too, this coming November. Do you think a lot of the information that's coming out of the government is just smoke and mirrors to get us off of perhaps top secret things that are going on in the military, and I don't mean extraterrestrial, but perhaps uh, different experiments with different types of vehicles, uh, anti-gravity, that type of thing. I'll give you an example. There's many things that give me a smoking gun in the Kennedy conspiracy. And, uh, for example, on November 20th, which was uh, two days before JFK was killed, two police officers, and this is documented, folks, this is an FBI document, chased two shooters with guns behind the picket fence on a grassy knoll that were targeting their um, their scopes. Uh, Richard will probably know more about the technology behind that because he was in the military, but those two potential shooters were never caught. Now, this only came out in the late 70s, and I bet you haven't heard about this, and yet it's out there. So two days later, JFK was shot, but everybody says, no, it was a lone gunman and had nothing to do with the grassy knoll. Well, come on. The other thing is two top Kennedy aides were in the car following JFK. One was Kenny O'Donnell, the other was Dave Powers. They both saw the shooter on the grassy knoll. So all that to say is this stuff has only come out now, I would say in the past 10 years, through data mining in the internet, because when you plug in something as somebody's name, say JFK, you're going to get a thousand and a million hits. If you plug in somebody else's name, like Jack Ruby, you're going to start to get documents, and you're going to start to get articles that had no relation before. And this is going to reveal further information. Getting back to my original question, is there a lot of misinformation and disinformation coming out of the White House? Well, not just the White House. And I mean, oh. I, can, I can freely say this uh, without danger to my uh, clearance or anything else. Yes, sir. I mean, it's obvious that we and every government in the world has um, secret uh, research going on mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. also uh, military-type secrets. Um, you know, of course, things like the codes used to give orders in Iraq and stuff sure, like that, of course, sure. those are classified. Absolutely. But there's other types of classified things which are, are deemed, uh, you know, things are classified for a variety of reasons. One is... Um, a common one is the source, okay? It, revealing a particular type of information might clue the wrong person into how you got that information or who gave it to you specifically and a person could wind up dead. Or more than likely nowadays, Mm -hmm. since uh, human intelligence is not as heavily used as it once was, although that's changing a little bit, um, uh, is uh, showing a particular picture would tell people with the right skill set what kind of uh, imaging systems you've got on certain satellites. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, of course. So that yeah. kind of thing gets classified because of what's called the source. 
being, you know, revealing the information right. would reveal the source to the right kind of people or the wrong kind of people. Uh-huh. Um, now, there's another whole layer of technologies, which the most obvious example, again, is uh, the Manhattan Project in uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, the, uh, that whole thing, te- I'm really talking about the, the most sensitive high-tech stuff that gives us an advantage. Uh, and by us, I'm, I happen to be, you know, I'm talking about the U.S. government, but it, mm-hmm. but it could be any government. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the way governments think. Uh, and if they've got something that that they perceive gives them a significant technological advantage, um, that program becomes classified for a whole different reason than the kind of reason that oh, you're see, interested in, or mm-hmm. you and your audience are interested in. Mm-hmm. And the at the bottom line of a classified program or a secret program is they're going to lie about it. I mean, that mm-hmm. is just the way it is. I mean, they are not going to tell you that they're working on it. They're going to deny that they were working on it. Mm-hmm. If somebody says that they know something about it, they are going to try to uh, minimize that person's impact, and by that I mean usually uh, uh, dismiss him as some kind of a kook or a nut or, you know, you don't yes. want to give him too much credibility because uh, depending on, unless he's the, like this this Chinese guy you were just talking about <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that that does something so stupid as to have a get caught with a boatload of uh, of secret papers, well, that guy's going to prison. Uh, Let's hope. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of times uh, they, can, they can do something more mm-hmm. effective than that, which is uh, essentially brand the person as a crackpot, a nut. Discredit. Uh, and somebody that, uh, okay, you know, they've, they say they've got this information. Um, it's a likely story. I mean, it, it's, the guy's a nut. Right. And, and right. you know, having grown up in you know, around the Roswell area, yes, uh, when I was a kid, and of course that was, you know, I was born nine years after uh, the Roswell incident in nineteen, you know, that happened in mm-hmm. forty seven. Forty seven. Uh, but I, uh, I grew up in that area, and you know, the funny thing about Roswell is now everybody knows about Roswell, uh, but that really only happened in the late eighties to nineties when, uh, you know, TV shows and movies mm-hmm. started coming out about Roswell, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the general public became aware of that. I mean, there was always a UFO community uh, that knew about it, uh, but uh, but it wasn't that big. And, and for me growing up in that area, um, the general population is just regular working folks. I mean, uh, you know, Mac Brazel, who was the cowboy that actually came across mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. Um, he he was just he was not any sophisticated guy. He he probably never thought of the idea of an alien spacecraft, uh, you know, and and so I think what what uh, what caused a lot of the people in in that area to to start believing the story was not necessarily the story itself, but it was the way the government responded to their telling the story. Um, you know, the government came in uh, in a heavy-handed way. At least mm-hmm. that's the way it was perceived by the people in the area, and uh, and they and they or they reacted very strongly. For I mean, they had a big reaction to a weather balloon and a couple of dummies, and they were uh, throwing threats around and things like that. Uh, also, right, and and yeah. and they brought in a big team. I mean, this is the type of the team that is brought in if a if a really secret plane goes down, mm-hmm, like a U two or something, now they'll they'll bring in a team of folks and they'll secure the area and they'll clean it up. They'll clean up every scrap of metal. 
and before um, whoever owns that area is allowed back into it. Um, and that was the type of team that was brought into the area. Um, so, so it just didn't sound right. I mean, the, the, to, the, to the local folks, the way that they handled the people that had seen the, uh, the event and the way they handled the, uh, the cleanup, let's call mm-hmm. it, uh, um, it just seemed suspicious. And, and one of the things I, I always like to tell folks is, uh, you know, you, we have this, this inner voice. Each of us has a different variety of it, but, but that, uh, that alerts us to when things aren't right, like aren't, when you're not being told the straight story or, or if you're out and you meet someone and you just don't feel right about this person, mm-hmm. this person uh, you get a sense that something's not right. Uh, you know, it's usually a good idea to pay attention to that inner voice, and that's the type of thing people sense that when um, they're being told a story, whether it's by scientists or government, and it just doesn't feel it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I advise people to pay attention to that. Gut intuition, I guess you could call it. Yeah. I, okay. That's that's very that's good advice. You mentioned Mac Brazel before and the tinfoil that folded out and flattened itself. All these things. Is there any chance that perhaps some of that technology made its well way into the stealth bomber? Um, uh, I'm asking you specific <laughs> questions now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I can't comment specifically on. Uh, on development programs that uh, okay fair enough fair enough okay um has there been any backlash from the community towards you and i mean the community i mean the intelligence community for releasing this specifically okay but you've got to remember um, Mm -hmm. the reason i wrote science fiction is because i can say yeah it's science fiction um and uh, that also keeps me uh, out of a place I don't want to be, which is uh, called jail. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's certainly, I, I can tell you, there's, there's certainly going to be a large number of people that, uh, uh, that are skeptical of anyone mm-hmm. uh, that is, uh, well, for example, let me take my, my claim that, uh, that computers, that, are, that, that there are signs in the readily available to the public and that computer uh, professionals are aware of, uh, that computers are about to acquire the capacity to learn on their own um, in the very near future. Now, Richard, where do those... That is laughable to some people in the industry. Oh, it's not to me. Now, who would write these algorithms, these open-ended algorithms? Would they... Would the algorithms be brought in from a foreign source, an extraterrestrial source, or... Many, many computers. I mean, the way to do it is mm-hmm. is uh, relatively common knowledge now. Uh, I mean, if you go out on the Internet, it, well, you take a, uh, a savvy computer science student mm-hmm. uh, locally there, and they can write you a neural network. Uh, uh, they might have to research it a little bit. It depends on how skilled they are. But the basic, you know, basic genetic algorithms and neural network learning algorithms, training algorithms, um, are available out there in, and widely known, widely distributed. In fact, some of the, adva- the more advanced ones are commonly used for things like analyzing the stock market. Uh, you know, the millions of dollars are paid for really good uh, neural and, uh, uh, and genetic algorithms. And there's also some simulations that are considered 
ga- games, let's say, that simulate mm. uh, things that are alive, simple li- little things that are alive, uh, anything from fish to bugs, etc. And uh, this, uh, and those things are getting um, so good. The best ones are getting so good at simulating life. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they behave is uh, is is almost questionable um, that the simulation is as, as good as the real thing. Uh, of course, that. it's not. It doesn't have physical uh, components, but. But you know, this leads into something that is uh, that is about to, another area that's about to break out big time is an area which I call bioelectronics, um, and uh, I think the way uh, the way this topic was usually envisioned is something like the board. You know, you've got a cybernetic mm-hmm. organism, uh, but that's not really the way things are going. Uh, the way things are going is more the simplest form of processor uh, inserted into a biological cell so that it adds the capability of guiding the cell in what it's doing. But the cell actually does the work because uh, biological systems tend to be very good at certain things that are hard to do with computers, even especially at a a nano level. Really? this sounds now, like Frankenstein, example, Richard. This sounds like Frankenstein. We're going to create Frankenstein. Well, not necessarily. I mean, you can. I mean, there's been many uh, topics discussed about mm-hmm. in, uh, modifying, uh, uh, modifying, say, white blood cells uh, to target specific things and not other things. Now, one way to do that is genetic engineering. Right. But uh, genetic engineering is highly dangerous in a different way. I mean, if you modify the genetics of something. Uh, and it passes from generation to generation, you've modified that species from then on. Uh, but a way that's being worked on that actually doesn't do that, mm-hmm. but which has some amazing capabilities, is a sense of modifying individual cells with simplest of little tiny uh, nanomachines, uh, nano, uh, nanocomputers, you can say, mm-hmm. that, that don't have much power, but when you get a swarm of them... Uh, then they establish this this thing that I call swarm computing or swarm uh, ability to do significant things, but they don't have to do it mechanically. The cell can do the work. Um, one simp- one oversimplification of that, and this is uh, this is nowhere near the uh, capability of what I'm talking about. But uh, you've probably seen uh, stories about research teams that have actually put a chip on something like a cockroach. Sure, sure, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. And tied into its nerves, and then you can take a, a remote control mm-hmm. and make the cockroach walk wherever you want him to, okay, or do Based on pulses. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, essentially, that's what we're talking about doing on the cellular level. You put oh, in a, something that's very simple, Yes, sir. but... But it's hard. I mean, if you were to build a machine to move like a cockroach, that would be a very hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it's much easier to build a control circuit that gets embedded into something that can already do pretty much what you want it to do. You just want to guide it or give it general uh, direction on what it's doing. And then you achieve some amazing, amazing results. I bet. Now, we're coming up, but we're going to have to start to wrap up soon. There's a couple of questions I want to get to. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. 
The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Let's talk about bodies for a second. Dead bodies? Dead dead alien bodies, to be exact. (laughs) We have talked, you know, we've bounced around Roswell all evening. And the rumor has it, or the fact has it, that there were bodies recovered. Could you speak to that a little bit? And perhaps is there any technology that you can give us a hint towards that may have come from dead alien bodies? Well, what I can say is I have never seen uh, a dead alien body. Okay. Um, And so so I really don't have any personal uh, knowledge of it. And, you know, it's really not in my area of research. So even if it existed, it would have been compartmentalized to somebody that had a need to know that kind of... uh, kind of a thing so i'm just not the expert with that with the specific knowledge on that fair enough richard the other one i'd like to do with every guest that comes on the show is there's a lot of university students listening right now a ton of them i like to ask my guests especially writers and people of your scientific background to say a few words of inspiration if you will would you recommend folks going to military colleges for example well i I don't think it's for everybody Uh, it certainly was good for me i mean you know, one of the I've got to talk about the fears of going to a military college. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, because a lot of parents worry about that, and uh, and a lot of uh, people that are considering it, it's a concern. You know, one of my big concerns when I went to West Point was yes, uh, was uh, you know you get you're, you're put in a very high stress situation, mm-hmm. and it's a system designed to strip away um, that person you thought you were. And uh, to reveal the, you know, put you under so much pressure. It's designed to let you discover what you're really made of. Mm, um, and I, my big fear when I was going through that process, which is a, uh, a very uh, significantly successful process, by the way, um, is I was afraid I would lose the person that I was. Oh, I see. That, you know, that they were somehow going to make me not like the things I liked before I went there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I didn't worry about becoming an automaton or anything like that. It was just that I would be significantly enough changed that the things that I had loved before wouldn't be the things that were still important to me after uh, going through that process. And that wasn't the case at all. But I do think, you know, the, that uh, the military, whether it's uh, a military education or whether it's joining a military, yes, sir. Uh, does make you grow up. And in a hurry, because you're given responsibilities. And one of the, yeah, I, the people I really recommend it for and think it's great for is there's a lot of young people that get out there and they party and they don't really, uh, they don't really learn right away the importance of, of working hard and, and taking advantage of the educational opportunities you're given. And once you've been in a military uh, for any amount of time, you appreciate the little things. And when you get a chance to go back to school, I mean, it's with a whole new outlook. Uh, you appreciate every chance you've got to study and try to uh, try to better yourself uh, because uh, because you've been through some times that uh, that just make you appreciate that. Okay, that's great. How about as a nuclear physicist? Is there anything that you can inspire the folks who are considering to become? Well, I think uh, you know you can probably tell when I'm when I'm talking. I think science is incredibly exciting, and I think we're on the verge of some of the most exciting scientific breakthroughs uh, that have ever happened. The whole in a cross wide spectrum, 
Um, so this is an incredibly exciting time to be a, a scientist. Um, it's also, you know, with every great breakthrough, there's incredible risk associated with the unintended consequences that have to be well thought through. But if, but if the young scientists know that, I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting, but uh, it's important to be rigorous and be careful and think about what could go wrong, even if it goes too right, more right than you expected. Okay, that's uh, good advice. They would, that's a great career. And, and I would just say, in general, oh, for the writers out there, for the yes, thank uh, you. liberal arts folks, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the great tools that I have really learned as a, as a writer has been the publishing on the Amazon Kindle. Uh, the reason I'm so big on that is it doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> you, you try to go, and plus it's fast. You get a, a work written, you can publish it on the Kindle, um, they'll link to your bank account, and, and if you can promote it and sell it, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the, you'll just start getting deposits for your percentage of that book, and it's a higher percentage, actually, than you get uh, from paperback. Plus, paperback publishing, as you're well aware, takes forever. I mean, yes, sir. you know, you've got to go through the, the whole publishing process, mm-hmm. and then you're waiting for the books to be distributed and printed and all that kind of stuff. So... So I highly recommend uh, people that are writing fiction, nonfiction, whatever, uh, to check out publishing it in ebook format on the uh, on the Kindle. I've had a very good experience with that. That's right across the board. Great advice. We have to wrap up now. Any parting words, my friend? Uh, yeah, come come visit visit me on my site at secondship.com. I've got excerpts. I've got links to shows uh, that I've done. This one will be up there uh, as soon as I've got the link to it. And thank uh, you, sir. And uh, I'll uh, respond to emails if I can get through them all. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. It's been a great, great informative evening for me. I've learned a lot, uh, and I feel that there's much more out there to learn, uh, especially from a person of your stature that has been in those various situations, top secret and otherwise. I want to thank you again for coming on the show and uh, sharing your experiences with us. Also, will you please come back when you have the other books out? Yeah, as soon as uh, Immune is available, I've got a link to it available on print-on-demand. Uh-huh. It's not officially published yet. Once Immune comes out and we launch the, the big promotional campaign for that, I will, uh, I will get with you and I'll, uh, I'll give you a call and we'll set something up. That's terrific. Folks, we've been speaking with Richard Phillips. Thank you, Richard, so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Have a great evening, my friend. You too. Bye now. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Wasn't that great? That was Richard Phillips, folks. He's got a terrific book out called The Second Ship. Now, The Second Ship is a sci-fi novel about three teenagers, and they're going to take you through this whole journey where they come across a second ship that was found near Roswell. It's a great ride, and as I said all along, Richard Phillips has a top-secret clearance, and uh, he's worked extensively, well, for the national defense and things, and uh, he has all this information that he he was making very subtle hints in and around what he knows. Uh, it was a fascinating ride tonight. It was really great. I learned a lot of stuff, and um, we got to get this guy back because this stuff is real. This stuff is real. Without hesitation, I can say that. I've talked to enough UFOologists throughout the history of this show, and uh, this stuff is absolutely real. 
Uh, it's riveting stuff. Coming up on Night Fright, I just want to direct you once again to the Night Fright website first. www.nightfrightshow.com www.nightfrightshow.com There you can find a plethora of archives of all the shows we've done since last October, including Richard's show. will be up there very shortly. www.nightfrightshow.com Coming up next week, 2012, Jack Alice will be here. We're going to be talking about 2012 and his perspective on it. As you know, a few uh, weeks ago, we had another guest on talking about 2012. And uh, that was really interesting. Uh, Robert Gleason's book, uh, Apocalypse 2012. That's in the archives also to listen to that. Mr. Alice has a different take on it. And you're going to have to listen to the show next week to uh, hear about that. It's more of a he feels it's more of an evolution, a natural evolution. It's going to be a great show, 2012, next week. Um, Jack Alice is a, the guest's name. Uh, the week after that, uh, we've got all kinds of great guests coming up. I've just solidified today a fellow by the name of Mike Stone for Haunted Halloween. He's going to be coming on and talking about serial killers. He's a psychiatrist, and he's done studies on serial killers. We're going to get into the depths and darkness of real-life Hannibal Lecters. Oh, yeah, baby. This is going to be a great, great show. Haunted Halloween also is going to um, have various other guests, such as Michael Norman is going to be coming on and talking about Canadian-U.S. hauntings. He's done a whole series of study of, of hauntings. He'll be here uh, the first week of October, October 7th. A fellow who I have been trying to get on the show for quite some time because he's uh, always in great demand, a fellow by the name of Stan Romanek. Many of you out there may have heard this name before. Stan Romanek, of course, is an alien abductee, and his is probably the most reported on abduction case in the history of abduction cases. He is consented to be on Night Fright. Write this date down September 30th 10 o'clock Eastern to midnight CKLU 96.7 Stan Romanak is going to be here talking about his alien abduction so you know you've probably heard his name bounced around um, on shows such as uh, David Letterman um, Larry uh, King Etc., etc., etc. So, if the name sounds familiar, it really should because he's top notch. It's going to be great. Well, folks, that's it for tonight. I thank you all so much for listening to Night Fright and making us number one in our respective time slots right across the country. That's very, very kind of you. Drop me an email. I read all the emails and I try to respond to them all, although it's not always easy. But uh, certainly send me an email, and if you have any uh, wild sightings or any photos with all kinds of creepy things in them, please send those along, too. I'm much appreciated. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. We'll see you next time. to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 
Okay, this email says that it's a funny story, and it's from Peter down in Toronto. And uh, he says, great subject today, Brent. Thank you for your show. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. Okay, he goes on to say, we live a dull, uneventful life. That is until we packed and moved from Montreal to our new home in Toronto. Toronto's more exciting than Montreal? I digress. New house, new bedroom, new noises at night, right? Par for the course. My wife and I were just getting accustomed to the new creaks and cracks of our new home, as would be common in any other house of similar age. Then something absolutely bizarre began to happen. One night while sleeping, we were both startled awake in the middle of the night by a toilet flushing somewhere in the house. We lay in the bed and stared out at the hallway and listened intently, fully expecting someone's footsteps to be heard. One minute passed, two minutes, then finally ten minutes. We finally brushed it off to an anomaly and went back to sleep. Now to be fair, it is a fairly large house with several floors and eight bathrooms. Peter, what's going on? Everything was fine for the next few evenings and we were settling in quite nicely to our new surroundings. Then it happened again, flush, right in the middle of the night. We both looked at each other, perplexed. Again, no sounds after, no footsteps, no apparitions, no cold spots, nada. Just the flush. Do ghosts have to use toilets too, I thought? The same scenario repeated itself several more times until I knew I should do something. I ended up calling a top-notch, well-trained scientist with all kinds of official certificates from an Ivy League, no less, school to investigate. He came right away with his right-hand man advisor. In they came with boxes and boxes with all sorts of test equipment, cameras, tape recorders, and all kinds of parts and wires everywhere. After a full two days of research, quote-unquote, they returned to their lab to assess the results. Then came the startling revelation. Something we had no idea could actually happen in this day and age. They found that the ball valves or flappers, sorry, I don't know the technical term, in the water tanks, a couple of toilets were leaking, and after a time they would cause the toilets to flush. After they replaced the flappers, there was no more ghost flushings at night. End of ghost story. And on the second page he has, P.S., the visit by the plumbers cost 90 bucks, but we had several flappers replaced, and I even went to Canadian Tire and bought a spare flapper. That story from Peter, now having sound sleeps in his new home in Taranto. I hope you enjoyed this potty humor, Peter. <laughs> 